Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. Good afternoon. This is your host, Vanessa Ng. Two weeks ago, we learned about Skydeck and the Berkeley Method of Entrepreneurship from Iklok Siju, founding director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at UC Berkeley, otherwise known as the CET. Joining us today is Ken Singer, Managing Director of the CET. Today, we'll learn more about how Skydeck helps to develop Berkeley's entrepreneurial culture. Thank you for joining us, Ken. So just in case some of our listeners weren't able to tune in two weeks ago, what is Skydeck? Yes, so Skydeck is a joint venture between three big groups on campus, the College of Engineering, which is the, the school that I work for, and the business school. Business School, and the Vice Chancellor of Research. And a few years ago, the deans and the vice chancellor got together and realized we had a missed opportunity in entrepreneurship, that we should have a, a coordinated effort in facilitating and developing startups that are popping up all over campus. You know, we all have different um, skill sets and different kinds of strengths that we can contribute to the growth of small companies. And um, while we were seeing Stanford and several other universities make inroads by having, um, it seemed to be a more collective effort, that it only made sense for us to do the same thing and pull together a brand that was Berkeley-wide, right? Berkeley campus-wide rather than just in everyone's different uh, colleges. Could you tell us more about your relation to Skydeck? So I I started... um, I started working at, at Berkeley about eight years ago as an instructor for the mobile applications course. It was the first class that they they taught in that. And I was running a startup at the time, and two years ago the startup was sold, and I uh, was pretty exhausted. It was five years of just 24-7 working, and I thought, well, what if I go back to the university, maybe teach a little bit more, and just kind of take a breather. And uh, in talking to Iklak, he said, hey, Ashley, we're looking for someone who might be able to head up the CET uh, because I'm moving into developing more programs. And so he brought me in and we became co-directors of the CET two years ago. And they had just started Skydeck around then. That was the first, I think, cohort of teams that had gone into Skydeck. And um, and so I was there kind of at the beginning to help form some of the the programmatic elements of how teams might be selected. We at CET were, were part were, were, were partners with Skydeck in many ways. One of which is we share resources, we share mentors, but what we also do is we feed teams up to Skydeck. So a lot of our teams from CET, which were part of the engineering school, so most of our teams are are heavy engineering based. So some. Uh, some devices, some uh, research-based uh, algorithm stuff, you know, uh, some applications, but a lot of it is heavy, heavy research-based. And the, the teams that have come up with those concepts or those products need a little bit more help before they are ready for Skydeck, right? So a lot of the business school students, they already know how a term sheet should look like. They already know what negotiations should sound like. They, they've had some of that training. In fact, most business school students have had business experience. They've, they're back at school, right? But most of our engineers 
that their undergrads, of course, have oftentimes never worked before. And if they're graduate students, they've gone through the whole track where they've never really been in industry. So they, they, they themselves have not had much industry experience. So what we do is we put them through a, what we call an incubator, which is Venture Lab. And Venture Lab is kind of like, kind of like your, um, what is that first five kind of uh, head start program for engineering based startups, where we help you learn how to hire and fire people on your team, because many of these people haven't even been hired before, right? Because they've never been in an industry. We help them talk to investors, how to find them, how to talk to them. We also help them find first customers or how to even talk to a customer, how to even look at a customer because they'll they'll use the name, hey, we want to sell to Apple. They don't realize there are multiple groups at Apple, different people who have different agendas that you need to find the right person who will be an advocate. So they don't even f- fundamentally understand the, 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 the challenges ahead of them in some of the things they absolutely have to master. So what we do is in Venture Lab – and, and they stay for anywhere between three to six months. We help them through those elements, get used to those those activities before the ones that are ready, we graduate them up to Skydeck, and they perform much better when they get, get up to Skydeck because they're ready for what's Skydeck, which we consider Skydeck an accelerator. And what that means is that a team is pretty well formed, so they know who what everyone is doing on the co- in the company. There's no real hole in the company. It, it's a strong, fundable team. They have a product. They know what their product market fit is. They know who the customers are. They have probably a dozen or so customers. And they know how their customers purchase product. And they're there really to fundraise and, and grow. And so what you'll see with a lot of teams up there, they've got really strong presentations, really sharp pitches. They know how to sell their product. They also know their market extremely well. And now they're trying to find the right mechanism for growth. And that could be the right partner that can fund their growth or the right venture capital firm that can fund their, their expansion. So it's really for more mature teams that have gone through, you know, that they've gone through the ropes, either through Venture Lab or through other means. But they, they tend to be well positioned to get funding and, and grow from there. Could you tell us how Skydeck is different from all the other um, hubs and accelerators in the Bay Area? If I'm an entrepreneur, how would I know which tech space I should use? Yeah, so there's been there's been this incredible explosion of incubators and accelerators and programs and 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 whatnot. And, and I'm actually part of several international ones to bring companies from other countries here to be incubated or to get injected with some of the Silicon Valley culture, as they say. And and I think they have a list of several thousand of these programs around the world. And just in Berkeley, I heard there's something like six or seven. And sometimes they're topical. Sometimes they are just uh, physical space. And other times they're really programmatic. And um, I would say the difference between them, and actually, let me tell you what I think they are. Incubators are really, they provide a few things. One is obviously space. Many of them provide space, and either at a discount or free. They also, by virtue of giving you space, they give you a community 
of other startups and entrepreneurs who you, by virtue of being next to them, you'll find ways to collaborate and share information and be able to really fast track your, your path to success by learning from each other. It's a peer driven educational model, right? Where you're learning from each other. And that actually, I would say from being an entrepreneur myself is the way that I learned a lot is that you build a community of, of like-minded folks who are dealing with same issues. And frankly, actually what you end up talking about is not much, it's, it's not really the, the technical parts or the VCs even, you don't, you do share some information about that, but the vast majority of stuff that you share is around, I am dealing with some serious stress right now. I've got a guy who's about to leave or have IP issues or I'm running out of money. And it's not really, can you solve this problem for me? It's just, can you listen to me have a freak out so that I don't freak out in front of my team, right? And maybe you can commiserate with me for a little bit. And then I can sound totally with it when I'm talking to, to my team. Because being an entrepreneur, being a founder of a company is by far the loneliest experience you will ever have because you cannot share a lot of information with a lot of people, especially the people you're closest to, your team. You can't tell them you're running out of money. You can't tell them you might have some concerns about the IP. You can't tell them you might be getting sued by Apple or by Google or whomever, right? And these things happen, right? And so you end up having to hold back enormous amounts of information because that's the nature of the game. And you have to be careful about what you hold back, but there's certain things that will randomize your team or your effort. And what drives a startup is momentum. It's this belief that you're, you're going to be doing something great. And so it becomes a very lonely road for, for that founder. So if you have a community of people who, who get together because they share space, you have that valve. It's a safety valve that just blows steam you know, and, and keeps you sane. It's a really important element of all of that. And if you talk to people who have successfully exited out of these incubators, you'll hear a very common theme about, you know, it was really important that we were, we, we were in that environment with all these other entrepreneurs, right? And this is why the good incubators and accelerators like Skydeck are extremely careful about who they select because you you don't want to introduce a wrong element in there that can cause people to stop sharing with each other across the different companies. The other thing that that incubators and accelerators do is that they leverage the extended network of the people involved in the incubator. So you see these independent incubators pop up in San Francisco and throughout the country, and the person who started it usually has a huge Rolodex of people that they know, from investors to partners to vendors to all these folks lawyers, consultants, all these people who can help your business, and they become the connector, right? What's the, the, the huge advantage that Skydeck has is its association with UC Berkeley. And UC Berkeley has something like 475,000 alums that, uh, who are currently alive and that can be resources for companies that are starting up. And that's where I think Stanford's done a great job where we can do a better job here is that they've engaged their alumni network. Of course, their alumni network tends to be very, very technical as well, as well because there's so many that stayed in the, in the Bay Area. Um, so that network is what drives the growth of these startups. The more people that you meet who might have a relevant connection to your business, 
is equivalent to maybe 15 connections because they can introduce you to so many more people. So, you know, Skydeck, because of its connection with Berkeley, is probably the potentially the strongest network that you can have because it's not just Jeff Burton who runs Skydeck whose network you're going to be tapping. And by the way, he's a Stanford grad, right? And he's such a huge advocate for, for this program at Berkeley. But you're also tapping the networks of all of the deans, all of the executives, the the professors, all of the people who want to give back to Berkeley. And we have tons of people who come back who want to help smart small companies. Those people become your resource that you can't buy. You just can't buy access like that. That's something that you have to be a part of in order to get access to. It does seem like Berkeley has a very strong alumni network. But a lot of the national press seems to focus on Stanford and its ability to produce entrepreneurs with great commercial innovations. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, so, you know... I can take you back. I was, I was a history major, so I like looking at this in a chronological and historical way. And actually, it's both historical and geographic. So if you look at Berkeley, Berkeley abuts a hill. And so growth potential for Berkeley for companies that might sprout up around the campus are fairly limited. And that happened actually fairly early because after World War II, the East Bay exploded you know, um, and during World War II. So uh, there wasn't much room f- for growth, you know, for, for cheap space. And if you look at Stanford, it, there is a reason why they call it the farm, is that there's a lot of, there was a lot of space. Not so much anymore, but back then it was at Strawberry Fields. So geography had something to, be, to play into it over the course of the last 50 years, right, because companies could find inexpensive places to, to build their businesses. But also there was a strategic decision that was made back during World War II, Right. Um, during World War II, the government enlisted several universities to help them develop uh, weaponry. Right. So MIT did a lot of work, um, and so did so did Berkeley. You know, with our role in in discoveries around nuclear technology, and so Berkeley saddled up with government and got a lot of research grants and a lot of research money. And when you start that, it just becomes easier to get government money. And Stanford went the other direction. They partnered up with the private industry. And so if you look at who set up shop literally on their campus, you had HP built literally on their campus. You have Xerox Park. You have now SAP. So you have some of the very largest companies literally on their physical location. And that strategy has proven out to be probably the better one. Um, And when you are a, you know, private university, you get to make a lot of decisions faster. And I think you're also allowed to make some more mistakes because, you know, you're afforded that luxury of of changing course and and trying new things. So, um, you know, with those two things, Stanford was able to grow very quickly with these you know, other companies that were built around their campus with their professors, with their students, and it was also in the company's best interest to promote themselves. And if you think about government research, it's really not in the government's research agenda to promote, you you know, on the scale that small, large companies do, um, what they've been successful at, especially if some things have military application, they don't really want to let people know. So that, that's kind of what I think has 
created that disconnect between what Stanford now represents and what Berkeley, the 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 lack of a PR engine that Berkeley has had. And, you know, with with the way that these communities work, you can't just be the only one talking about how great you are. You need to have other people talk about you. And when you have thousands of companies down, you know, Google and Yahoo that all and Cisco and, and Sun that spun out uh, of, of the Stanford campus. And, of course, Berkeley has a role in Sun as well. But, you know, when it came out of, out of Stanford, they talk about that. And they end up promoting uh, that campus by virtue of, of, of them promoting themselves. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. Joining us today is Ken Singer, Managing Director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at UC Berkeley. You mentioned earlier that Stanford's strategy of partnering with industry ultimately proved to be the better method. What do you mean by that? Are the CET and Skydeck part of an effort to emulate Stanford's entrepreneurial direction? Yeah, so I, I would I would correct my previous statement. I wouldn't say that it's better. I think it was more effective in achieving some of the goals that that I'm sure Stanford had, which was to become the nexus of of startups and innovation. And and Berkeley, I would say, is on par if you were to look at just the kinds of innovation that comes off of the Berkeley uh, Lawrence Berkeley labs and within our own campus here. But we don't have the same kind of marketing machine or the or the kind of uh, push towards promoting it. So it's um, it's it's different. And this is if you look at the reputations. And in fact, I just have recently talked to some students who are trying to figure out whether they should go to Berkeley or to Stanford. And the pitch that they get from Stanford is very much around, hey, we're, we have an entrepreneurial community here. Everyone's doing a startup. And, you know, you'll, you'll love that because this is what, uh, what real researchers do. And, and you know, it's, Berkeley is great. Academically, it's great. But that they produce professors and researchers. And, and I heard, I've heard that a couple of times now from students who have gotten that, that pitch. And to some degree, they're, they're right. Right, they're right that Berkeley does produce professors and researchers, but they are world class that turn around and create companies like Marvell and Cadence and and companies that you might not be familiar with, but they're multi billion dollar businesses that power every, virtually every machine that you use. Right? Yeah, if you use chips, part of them right? grew up in the Bay Area. Okay, yeah, <laughs> right. So if you use anything with a chip in it, um, other than a potato chip, you're you're dealing with something that was designed by on Cadence software, right? We don't know that because uh, many people don't know that because Berkeley oftentimes does the kind of research and the kind of of applications that aren't necessarily sexy, but they're foundational. And so everyone touches them. You just don't necessarily know you do. So earlier you mentioned that you uh, had been a history major. I was wondering if you could speak a little about that and then tell us more about your background and how you got here. Yeah, so I... Um, so I grew up in in the Seattle area, and um, had always wanted to be a a microbiologist. I always <laughs> wanted to do some research where I could some somehow have an impact. And my my mother was an English teacher, so I ended up coming to Berkeley as a dual major between English and microbiology. And I quickly lost the love of microbiology because in in my classes it was mostly pre med students who didn't necessarily like the material, 
but they were there to to get good grades. And I wanted to be around people who I could have interesting conversations with, right? And where I could find that was in my history courses that I took. And I, I took a few too many, actually, and realized in order for me to graduate on time, I would end up having to be a history major. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's poor planning. But uh, it was felicitous because I, I learned an enormous amount. And, and every, it's funny because I always get the first day of class. I teach several classes every year in the engineering school. And, and it's a multidisciplinary course, so I have students from, from Haas. I have students from the humanities. But half of them are engineers of some flavor. And I always get that question from someone who has pulled up their iPad or their, their computer and Google searched my bio. And there's one hand that goes up and says, um, so I noticed that you were a history major at, at Berkeley. Uh, can you tell us more about that, or the the braver ones will say, "Hey, can you tell us how that applies to to entrepreneurship?" Which what they really mean is, "How are you qualified to teach me today?" Right? Which is a classic Berkeley, you know, it's a classic Berkeley thing for students to do that. I, I'm used to it, and so what I tell my students is that history is not what you might think it is. Which most students, because of AP tests and because of the way we teach, thinks think that it's a string of, of facts and string of dates and people to memorize and wars and all of these things that are just something that you have to to memorize and get tested for. And what, what I tell them is if you take a really good history course, you find out very quickly that history is not about these things. History is about decisions. History doesn't exist in a vacuum. It actually can only exist when there's human beings involved. That is actually the definition of history. Every day as an entrepreneur, you do maybe 50 to 60 decisions, of which three or four are so consequential, if you make the wrong one, your company might die, right? And so if you have spent years studying what goes into a decision, what are the consequences? What are the unintended consequences? What are the things that you um, might not even know might be exogenous things that affect a decision? If you spent years analyzing that stuff, you become very comfortable making calculated decisions that hopefully will be good ones, and you're comfortable with that. And so I tell my students, if they haven't studied history, they haven't studied decision-making, and they're going to be pretty far behind when they need to make a couple of really key ones in their startup. That usually shuts them up. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about your background in entrepreneurship? So I came to Berkeley, as, as I mentioned before, completely planning to do something different. And in 1999, the internet bubble was still quite, quite huge. It, had, it was still expanding. And I sat down with a couple of friends and we just started kicking around some ideas, and it just kind of rolled down the hill. And we started a company, raised a bunch of money, and before I knew it, I turned around and realized I was doing a startup, and I'd quit school and 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 headed down this career path that that I look back now and go, that's insane. I was nineteen, twenty. I couldn't even rent a car in Germany, as I was as I found out as I was trying to go to a meeting that that was not possible. So. Uh, you know, it just kind of happened, I think, by the luck of the draw of being the right in the right place, the right time. You know, you're in the Bay Area, you're around other people who are innovative and, and, and interested in starting something. 
And also my father was an entrepreneur. He had started his own company as a consulting business for, for, for banks. But uh, so it wasn't really foreign in my, in my family to, to do something like this. And actually, they were fairly supportive of me doing that. They were one of the investors in, in that first company, which uh, didn't make money. We ended up selling the remnants of that company to, to a company in Singapore, but learned an in, enormous amount during that process. And once you've gone through it, it's really difficult to do something else. You know, I'm one of those people who is curious about everything. And if you're curious about everything, there's kind of two paths for you. Either you become a museum curator or a professor, which I didn't have the uh, the patience for that path. But uh, the other thing is to be a consummate tinkerer and be an entrepreneur. Because as an entrepreneur, you don't just do technology stuff if you're a tech entrepreneur. It's not just building product. But it's also working with customers. It's also working with finance, it's working with legal, it's working with patents and and conferences and marketing and, and all the elements that go into making a company fire up all the different parts of your brain. And it's all interesting. It's all interesting to see how they're all connected. And if you're a systems thinker like I am, I, it's just really fascinating how you know you pull a string over here on marketing and suddenly product changes. Right, you change a little bit on the product, and suddenly customers change the type of customers who come to you, and it's just kind of this game of. I was just trying to describe this to someone. It's like a game of kerplunk, right? You've got a bunch of marbles on top of these things, and you pull different things, and suddenly, for whatever reason, that last thing that you pulled out made everything collapse. But why was it just that last one, right? So it's really fascinating to me to see all those kinds of things. And so I was driven to entrepreneurship and startups. Part of it was because of time and, and place, but I think I'm well-suited for it because of this natural curiosity that I have. Could you tell us about some notable startups that Skydeck has helped accelerate? Yeah, so we've had a few that have recently got funded, uh, you know, small small amounts, the pre-Series A. We have one company called Lilly, and they were two guys who were in my mobile class a few years ago, or actually my big data class. They created a, and, and this is outside of, of the course, they created a drone company. Sounds a bit scary, but what they did was they put a camera on it and a sensor so that it follows you while you're doing extreme sports. So you know you've got the, the, the GoPro, but it's your, it's very solipsistic, right? It's from your standpoint. It's where you're jumping off of something. This thing is actually watching you as if you're having an out-of-body experience. So you can watch yourself do this stuff as if you're an observer. And uh, they recently got some funding. And they didn't know each other until my class. One was a business student, and the other one was an engineer. And in our, in our class, they, they met. And now they're best friends, and they've created a company together. And I would say that if there was ever a legacy that I would like to leave behind, is that I created an environment in which people who wouldn't have typically met or collaborated found a, a venue to do that, and some really cool, amazing things happened there that uh, had an impact. Right? That, that would be, for me, what I would love to leave behind at Berkeley. We've got a couple others that are earlier stage that we're really proud of. If they're successful, it will be a huge deal. We have one in cancer research, and these guys are, one is a researcher, the other one is a business major. They're called Excel Bio. And what they discovered was that metastasizing cancer cells are very difficult to replicate out of the lab. 
other cells you can replicate outside the outside of the body, right? And um, and metastasizing cancer cells, if you if you're familiar with it, spread very quickly, and you might have a few attempts at chemo before you know it ravages your body. So you got to get that chemo right. But you know, chemo is very individual, right? It's it might work for one person, and it might not work for another. And so what doctors typically do is they find the the chemo that they think would work on you, and that's just based on the population. It works on the highest percentage of people. They'll try that on you. That's the logic they go through to figure out what chemo to use. So what these guys have found was they could get metastasizing cancer to replicate outside the body. They discovered a, a way to do that. And now you can test chemo, all the different types of chemo on these cells outside the body to figure out which one will work for you to tailor the chemo to your body, which is amazing because, you know, this has an, uh, this has the potential of saving lives, but it also has the potential of making life a little more pleasant for those who don't have a chemo that will work for them. They don't have to spend their last year destroying their body and feeling horrible. They just can have, you know, enjoy the last, last year. So if you think about the human impact of some of this research that's going on, it only happens if someone finds a way to commercialize it. And that's the role that we play is to take these amazing things that are happening up on the hill, that's happening on campus, and helping those researchers and those innovators turn that discovery into something that can impact all of us, that doesn't just reside in a paper, but that can have a human impact on us. So that's how I, I think, you know, if I were to look at what we do as a center, I can't tell people that I'm I'm curing cancer, but I can certainly say that I'm helping people who are trying to cure cancer. Right. And that that's it's an it, it it's good to say. It's it's a good thing to be able to look at your job and say, hey, we're we're doing something that has that kind of impact. Thanks so much for joining us today. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways. You can email me. I, I have an open-door policy. It's at ken.singer at berkeley.edu. So K-E-N dot S-I-N-G-E-R at berkeley.edu. You can also uh, go to our website, cet.berkeley.edu, and you can get more information about our programs. Thanks again for joining us today, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was great. If you have questions or comments about this show, go to the KALX website and find Method to the Madness. Drop us an email. Tune in again two weeks from now at this same time. Have a wonderful weekend.